Well, what's the longest walk you've ever been on? Me and my family, so we tried to make it to Lake uh, Ostrander and Yosemite. Soon for all of us, it'll be when we get through the Gospel of Luke, about two more years. I'm proud to say, turn all the way to Luke chapter 7. We're now a fourth of the way officially through. Six chapters down and 18 to go. Jimmy's been careful to bring us back to the basics of the book when he preaches who wrote it, who he wrote it to, and why he wrote it. If you'll remember all the way back to week one, we're now in week 28, I gave you five different facets that Luke was writing from. So, as your teacher, how many of you remember any of those five facets? From what point of view, what, how is Luke writing? Silence is definitely. <laughs> Y'all gonna have to go back and listen to week one. Great, Jimmy knows historian was one. Musician. All right, here we go. First, musician. We see this in chapter one and two. And Mary's magnificent, the glory in excelsis. As historian, the most detailed, most accurate history of the life of Christ ever written. And see that in chapter 3, verses 1 to 2. He names seven historical figures. Nowhere else in the New Testament do we see that. Theologian. The Holy Spirit more than any other gospel. We see that in chapter 4. Jesus himself, his baptism, his temptation, his ministry, his inaugural sermon. 4 is disciple maker. He wrote more verses than anyone in the New Testament, including Paul, a fourth of the New Testament, and guess what the crazy thing is? He wrote it to one disciple. It's 2 Timothy 2.2 before 2 Timothy 2.2 was wrote. We saw this probably in chapters 5 to 6. He called his first disciples. He prayed for and chose his 12. He taught the disciples sermon on the level that Jimmy finished up for us last week. And then finally, physician. We've seen glimpses of this along the way. Remember, he said a man full of leprosy. That's a medical term. A man who was paralyzed. Just like a good doctor, he didn't give the common Greek term that Matthew did. He gave the technical medical term for it. And then he said a man whose right hand was withered. But no more do we see it prominently than here in chapter 7 that we're about to embark on. And it's Luke the physician writing about the physician, the great physician, Jesus Christ. And so speaking of physicians, what's the one thing you want in a physician? Is it knowledge? Is it skill? Is it good looks? You laugh at that, but I know some people who have then come back and said, yeah, that doctor you refer me to, he's pretty good looking. Is it the diploma on the wall that it's from Vanderbilt? Or is Harvard on the highway sufficient? Is it not compassion? Compassion has been defined as your pain in my heart. Your pain in my heart. Oh, what pain the Lord must have felt as He ministered place to place. Amen. So far, we've already seen it. Leprous, leprous men, paralyzed bodies, feverish mother-in-laws, withered hands, demon-possessed by the truckloads, various diseases too numerous to count. Dr. Wearsby says that if a Baptist hardship committee had been asked to decide which was deserving, we wonder who would have been chosen. Luckily, Jesus didn't just pick and choose. He ministered to them all. And so here in chapter 7, he's confronted with a satyrian's beloved slave on death's door, a widow next week that's bearing her only son, a perplexed prophet in need of reassurance, and then finally a sinful woman in need of forgiveness. And so Jesus, the great physician, extended compassion to them all. And so we're going to look at compassion in action for the next four weeks. And this morning we're going to examine the case of the centurion's servant. That's the title of the message. So stand with me to honor the reading of God's Word, Luke 7, 1 to 10. Luke writes, After he, Jesus, had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He's worthy to have you do this for him. For he loves our nation, and he's the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. 
when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore I did not presume to come to you, but say the word, and let my servant be healed. For I to him a man set under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and another come, and he comes, and my servant do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant. Well, the word of God to the people of God preached in the power of the Spirit of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your great compassion as the great physician. Father, as we look at that this morning, teach us about your precious son's wonderful compassion for us, Father, but also teach us about this centurion's great faith and, Father, where we may be falling short in our life in the faith department. I ask that you would bless the preaching of your word through me. Just help me to decrease and you to increase through me and speak to your people this morning. I ask this in the wonderful, precious name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So three aspects we're going to look at. The first is the crisis in the city. The crisis in the city, and that's verses 1 to 3. Verse 1 is straightforward. It's basically Luke's transition into this story. And having finished his sermon on the level, Jesus travels to and enters into Capernaum. And Luke tells us that a crisis is brewing. It's probably a very safe bet nobody is even remotely aware of this crisis outside of a very select few, including the centurion. Look at what the crisis is in verse 2. A centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death who was highly valued by him. Luke tells us that this centurion's servant lay sick. The word servant in the Greek, as we looked at this morning in Sunday school, is doulos. That's what you and I happen to be of the Lord. A slave, someone who belongs to another without any ownership rights of his own. And Luke tells us that he is sick. It's interesting that Luke the physician doesn't tell us of what, but he does tell us to what extent. Matthew the tax collector tells us of what? In Matthew 8, 6, it says that he was paralyzed. It's a Greek word that means to loosen or relax the nerves on one side. So perhaps he had had a stroke. Or maybe he had a brain tumor. There's no CAT scans or MRIs. Maybe he had an infection in his brain or spinal cord. Whatever, Matthew tells us how terrible the shape he was in. In Matthew 8, 8, it says he was grievously tormented from this. And so Luke's not so much interested in the what as the to what extent. Look at what it says there in verse 2 in the ESV. It says at the point of death in the King James, it's ready to die. The Greek word literally means about to happen. It's as good as happened. We would say he was hanging by a thread. We would say he was a goner. We would say just go on and call Dr. Buffy and have him sign the death certificate because it's as good as O-V-E-R. Over. Now you notice that I use my double quotations with Cassie saw it or not and sarcastically entitled this the crisis in the city because the long and short of it is that probably nobody cared that this servant is grievously tormented and at death's door. Slaves were a dime a dozen. And so they were probably thinking, well just go on and roll this guy out back and dump him over the fence with a wheelbarrow because if you took him out back and shot him, then you would waste a good bullet. Does that sound cruel? Let me ask you, have you ever had something that broke and instead of trying to fix it, you just say, well, I'm going to go buy a new one because it wasn't worth it? Yeah. I see somebody over here pointing at somebody. Would you ever do that to a dog? Your dog? Well, he's just broke down. You know, let's shoot him. Go get another one. Would you ever do that to a human being? But you know, the Romans did that to their slaves. They were defined as a living tool. One person said this, so, uh, he said that he recommended the farmer to examine his implements every year and to throw out those which are old and broken and do the same with his slaves. So this attitude of this centurion is very, very unusual compared to other people in the time. Luke says, look there in verse uh, 2, that he was highly valued by him. That's a Greek word that means prize, precious, dear. And so the situation is very serious. 
He's very dear to him. And so look, he takes action. Verse 3. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. Well, notice first off that he just simply heard about him. Had never even seen him. Well, what had he heard about him? Well, Luke has been telling us, and as we'll look at next time, that reports had been going out and going out and going out about the great things that Jesus had done, how many people He had healed, the great authority that He had over demons and different things and disease. And so He had heard these reports. And so when He hears this and sees this servant of His that's dear to Him and on death's door, He thinks, well, Jesus did it for somebody else. He can do it for me. That's a good lesson for us, isn't it? If Jesus saved anybody, He can save me. If He saved me, He can save anybody. Amen? And so then He sent to Him elders of the Jews. Well, I didn't think Jews and Gentiles had anything to do with each other. And then He asked Him to come and heal His servant. It's a very interesting word there, heal. Jesus in Matthew's account, when He says, I will come and heal him, actually uses a word that we get our English word therapy from, which basically means I'll cure him. But the word that is used here is that the centurion is asking him to do is die sozo. Die intensifying and meaning completely sozo to rescue or to save. He's saying, come and pull him through this, Jesus, because he's on death's door and he's precious to me and I know you can do it. And so already we see this centurion's a different dude, ain't he? So some points of application for this before we get into the next is this. It brings up to me a point of application of work relations. If you are a servant, a.k.a. employee, do you work to endear yourself to your master or employer? Or do you just say, well, I'm just going to show up and I'm going to do the absolute minimal that I have to do to get by and get a paycheck? I mean, Jason, when you got folks working for you at the gym, do you want them to just do the absolute minimal? I mean, is this how you want them to wipe down the machine and be done? No! They do not want you to do the absolute minimal. And here's the biggest thing. Look at Colossians 3. Who are you ultimately working for anyway? The Lord. You're not working. I'm not working for MMG Brighton anymore. I'm not working for myself. I'm working for the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You're serving the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you are a master, if you're an employer, then how do you treat and value your servants or employees? In Colossians 4.1 it says, Masters, treat your slaves, your employees justly and fairly, knowing that, guess what? You have a master in heaven. And then I think the second point of application is this, sanctity of life. How do we see those that society views as worthless? We must see all lives as created in the image of God and precious and worthy of being defended from the womb to the tomb and everything in between. And so not just in word... Not just in going to the voting booth and saying, well, I'm a good little Christian and I'm going to vote pro-life. No, it means you then do stuff to be sure that life is defended. And that may mean you going and serving. It may mean you giving. But you do something sacrificially to show that. Alright, so that's the crisis in the city. Let's look now at the characteristics of the centurion. The central character in this, what's called a paracote, which is a story... I don't like using story because these aren't stories. This is real life stuff in a real life man that came down from heaven and gave his life on a real cross for a real man named me. And so it ain't a story, it's a paracope. Okay? So the main character here is the centurion. He's by far and away no ordinary man. First off, we know he's a military leader. He's in charge of a hundred men. That's what we get our word century from. Similar to our army captain. They could be of any nationality. Sherwin White says that Romans didn't even serve in this capacity in Galilee until A.D. 44. So we don't even know if he was Roman or what he was. We know from Luke 7-9, though, that he is not Jewish. An ancient historian tells us this is their qualifications, that they would not so much be men that were seekers after danger as men who command steady in action and reliable. They ought not to be over-anxious to rush into the fight, but when hard-pressed, they must be ready to hold their ground 
and die at their posts. Here's how you and I would put it. We would say he was a man amongst men. Yet he's more than a military leader, more than just an average man. I'm going to give you several characteristics of him. First is that he was deeply moved. We've already noted he was deeply moved by the sickness and the imminent death of his beloved servant. He's not your average Joe centurion. And so as a point of application for us is this, are we moved by the plight of others? Are we moved by the fact that right now as we are coming into this nice building and being able to worship the Lord, that there is a child amongst our community, Jackson Huey, who is fighting literally for his life? Are we moved by that plight? Are we moved by the plight of our fellow brothers and sisters that are sitting in the pew next to us? Do you know I have a special privilege of knowing the struggles that many of you are that I don't obviously make public because you share those in confidence, but I know our people in these pews this morning are struggling. Struggling. We cannot, brothers and sisters, walk into this church building and just say, how you doing? Shake your hand. Give you a hug. See you next week. And that is it. That is not the Christian life. It is not to be lived out in isolation. It's like I said again to the guys yesterday morning on Saturday. If Jesus came in here and this morning put your arm out and drew your blood and said, I'm sending off a one another letter. How much you're loving your brother in the pew beside you. And he calls you on Monday morning. Y'all all know that phone call, right? You go to the doctor and it's been all since Friday that you're waiting on him to get the blood work back. Whether you got diabetes or you're dying or you're going to live. You don't even know if you're going to live or die. You're waiting on the doctor to tell you. Yeah, this is Jesus calling you. Uh, Buffy, I'm afraid there's something wrong with your blood work. Uh, Jesus, what is that? Am I going to live? Uh, well, you've got cancer. You've got cancer in your body that you are not loving your brother and your sister at Crossway Baptist Church like I have commanded you. That ain't one where you go, okay, doctor, well, I'll try to do better on my diabetes and I'll take my cholesterol pill five nights a week instead of seven. Do you get the point, brothers and sisters? There are people in our church this morning that are dying on the inside. And God has given us to them as a blessing to help them through this walk of faith. And guess what? You might be the one helping them right now, and next week it may be you that they need to help. As it's been said, every one of us is either going, we've either come out of a storm, or we're about to go into one, right? Alright, he's deeply wealthy. The lowest paid soldiers earned 75 denarii. They earned 3750 to 7500 20 years more they earned. You remember what Jesus said about the wealthy? That a camel could get through an eye of a needle easier than a wealthy man could get into the kingdom of heaven, but it appears by the mercy and grace of God that this centurion had gone through the eye of a needle. Which brings us to the point of this, and you might want to write this down, maybe this is true of you. He had money, but money didn't have him. Did you get it? He had money, but money didn't have him. How about you? Then he's deeply respected. I mean, like I said, Jews and Gentiles just did not get along. I mean, to me, as I was reading this and studying this, it's a photo finish. Verse 3 and verse 4 coming down the lane. Which one is the more remarkable? Because it says, when he heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews. That's prominent Jewish leaders. He sent them to come and heal his servants. Well, that's pretty remarkable that he would go to Jews and ask them to do that. But then here coming down the back stretch is verse 4. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded him earnestly, saying he's worthy to have you do this for him. Well, who are you to command us to go to Jesus and do anything for you? You're nothing but a Gentile dog. We're not going to help you out. What do they do? Oh, you want us to go to Jesus and ask him? Okay, we're going. It's remarkable. He was deeply respected. And don't lose sight of what Luke is doing. Who's he writing to? Jimmy's told you. Who's Luke writing to? Right, but the larger, larger audience is who? Gentiles. 
So what he's saying is, look, and there's churches in the first century in which there's Jews and Gentiles. The whole Colossian heresy is Jews and Gentiles not getting along. Y'all got to go get circumcised. No, we don't. And so he's breaking down those barriers of racial and religious hatred. What does it say in Galatians? There is no Jew, uh, Jew or Greek. There's no female or male. We're all one. And one thing that's a point of application that drives me crazy is 2,000 years, we're still fighting this fight. Just this week in Virginia, this weekend, we got blacks on this side that hate each other. We got whites on this side that hate each other. And they literally are driving cars through crowds of people to kill them because of such hate over color of skin. It's ridiculous. But it doesn't even stop there. It goes into the house of God. And so we have black people that say, and they've got on their wall a picture of black Jesus. And you got white people that have on their wall, I've got a picture of white Jesus. i got a, clue, a big clue for you. He wasn't either. He wasn't black nor white. He was olive skin. You probably would have hated him because of his skin color. And so these people, they respect him. And look at the length they go to. Look here at verse 4. It says they pleaded. See, you don't... This is why I'm going to eventually get all of y'all where you will actually do word studies. Because it enhances your understanding of the Scripture. Because this is what it says. It's in the imperfect tense. And they went and they pleaded 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 with Him. Now I know you mamas know this. Have you ever had a child come up to you? You daddies don't know. I don't know because my kids don't do this to me. But have you ever had your child come up to you and go, Ma, 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 what do you want? I mean, I, Jesus didn't sin, obviously, but I can almost imagine him What do y'all want? And so it says earnestly. That means wide open, full throttle. Why? They said He's worthy. That's the only time in the New Testament that that word is used to describe someone positively. Well, why is He worthy? Take notice of this. Look at what they said in verse 5. He loves our nation. He's not a proselyte. He's a God-fearer. We'll talk more about that later. Or it would say He loves our God. And He built us our synagogue. Notice there that he's a, somebody who doesn't joke about the Jewish faith. He loves the Jewish people and he's a man of means but he's also one of generosity. He's used his money to build this synagogue. And so let me ask you this. Does it matter what outsiders think of us? Does it matter what non-believers think about us as Christians? 1 Thessalonians 4.12 would say that it does. And as a pastor, do you know that one of the requirements for me as your pastor in 1 Timothy 3.7 is that I am well thought of by outsiders? It matters, brothers and sisters. So why in the world would he do this even if he's generous? Because think about the ridicule. Imagine when he shows up to roll call. You know, they have the army roll call and he shows up that morning and they go, well, Joe, man, we heard you built a synagogue for those Jewish folks. Is that true? Yeah. Can you imagine the ridicule he would get? Now imagine his emperor who's over him and start to go, why is he building this for these people? This is an act of treason. Off with his head. And so the next point is deeply religious. I mean, to go to that point and put up your money and risk being ridiculed and risk potentially having your head cut off because you were guilty of treason, you've got to be more than just superficially interested in the Jewish faith. Amen? You see, the Romans did encourage religion for cynical motives. They knew that it would maintain order. You remember the famous expression... Um, I believe it was Stalin that said it was the opiate of the masses, religion. And so Augustus said, hey, y'all build synagogues for this very reason. We want these people to be on the dope of religion and we want them to be maintained in order. Edward Gibbon in the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, he said this, 
The various modes of religion which prevailed in the Roman world were all considered by the people as equally true, by the philosopher as equally false, and by the magistrate as equally useful. But he's not just some cynic interested in opiate for the masses. He's a very religious man. Well, how do I know that? We heard about Jesus. He's got his ear tuned to what Jesus is doing. He sends the elders of the Jewish faith. He doesn't just contribute. He doesn't say, hey, here's 500 bucks towards your synagogue. He built the whole thing. And then he loved the Jewish people, as it's said there. Like I said, he's what would have been called a God-fearer, one who worshipped the Jewish God or worshipped God but didn't become a full proselyte to Judaism. He was interested in his own spirituality. The next is that he was deeply humble. Look at verse 6. It says, And Jesus went with him. He accepts the invitation. And so word reaches him that Jesus is coming. And look at what we read. When he was not far from the house, he sent friends saying to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself. I mean, has this guy got dementia? Why is he sending a second delegation? Some say Luke adds this to make clear his humility, but the whole point of this pericope is that Jesus can heal from another universe if he wants to. Amen? Yes. If Jesus wants to heal, if there's 95 universes and they're you know unimaginable distance apart, if Jesus wants to be in the 95th universe and speak healing into universe number one, it's going to happen. Amen? And so that's really the whole point of the story. But as part of this is we see his humility coming out. And guess what? Are soldiers like this very humble people that are over... You ever seen an army captain that was a very humble person? Not very many. So look what he declares though. He says, I'm not worthy to even have Jesus come into my house. In verse 6c. I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. And he says, not only that, I didn't even presume to come to you because I'm not even worthy to come to you. So that shows that a lot of people will say, well, he didn't want Jesus to come and be defiled by coming into his home. That shows you right there that that really wasn't his main point. His main point is his own unworthiness. It really recalls to mind Isaiah. In Isaiah 6, 1-5, when he saw the Lord, what did he do? He said, woe is me, I'm undone. And if you have ever seen the Lord and then yourself before Him, you will say the same thing. Amen? What did Peter do in in chapter 5, verse 8? When he saw the Lord, he fell down and he said, Depart from me, I'm a sinful man. Get out of here, out of my presence, because I'm a sinful man. And so, here's the centurion. Oh, Mr. Centurion, you're a good person. He said, eh, wrong answer. What does Romans 3, 10 teach us? Not one of us is good. In a bazillion years or a bazillion lives, we would never seek after God. Because it's not in our nature. Oh, Mr. Centurion, you've done good works, man. You've built the synagogue. And wrong answer. You're saved only by grace, through faith, not of works, lest what? Any man then boast. Dr. Hughes said the Bible in both Testaments teaches a plea of worthiness is totally unsustainable before God. Y'all know who invented the microscope? Dutchman Leeuwenhoek. I don't know, maybe Evan can pronounce it better than I can. 1674. Before that, folks would look at water and they'd do about like they do in Africa. Well, I can see through it. It must be clean. Let me drink it. Now, if y'all want to come with me to Africa and me... uh, Pull up some water and say, well, it looks pretty clean. Here you go, Billy. Take a big swig. No, thank you. But then when they invented the microscope and they could look underneath it, he said, this Dutchman said, the whole water seemed to be alive with multifarious animacules. You see, these elders analyze their life by externals. Well, he loves our nation. Why? Because he's done some good stuff and he's a good person. But the centurion analyzed his life how? With a microscope. McLaren said this, he said, every man is born with a Pharisee in himself. Every one of us wants to see how good we are. But when we turn the magnifying glass of God's Word upon us, you know what we see? A whole universe of squirming critters deep down inside and all we can holler out is unworthy. Unworthy. 
The next is deeply insightful. Look at the bridge between his humility and faith. To me, it's there in verse 6. He says, don't trouble yourself. That's a Greek word which means to harass or annoy. Jesus, don't even bother taking one more second of your precious time coming this way. I'm not worthy of your time. Just say the word and I know he'll be healed. You talk about what? Faith. Just say the word. How many of us in here, when we are struggling what's called a faith crisis, how many times have we gone into our prayer closet, fallen on our knees, and said this, Lord, you just say the word and whatever needs to be done will be done. Man, what faith. I mean, think about the disciples. They had seen Him raise the dead, heal the blind, heal lepers. There's a powerful storm in Luke 8.25 and He says, Shh, enough. Be quiet. And it be quiet. And they say, who even is this man? A year into being with him, they still don't even know who he is. This centurion has never even seen him and says that he's creator, sustainer. And so look at what he says. I mean, you know, what, what is it that uh, we have said, you know, as far as children, their faith? And so look at verse 8. I to him a man set under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and another come, and he comes, and my servant do this, and he does it. You ain't got to be a rocket scientist when it comes to faith. You just got to be smarter than a fifth grader. You got to be sm- just nothing in the kingdom. Just have a mustard seed of faith. And so he says, Jesus, I don't know how you'll do it, and I don't know what means you'll do it, but all I know is you can say the word, and it'll happen. Amazing faith, isn't it? So finally, let's look at the compassion of the Christ. Note this. I don't care who the central character is in any pericope, any passage in Scripture. When I earlier said that it was the centurion, it's really not the centurion. The central character in any passage in Scripture is God or Jesus Himself. Get Him up! Get Him up! Keith, last week, I guess it was maybe two weeks ago, talking about preaching. And you know, I told him, I said, it's really not as difficult as people make it out to be. If you will do three things, you'll do more than 80% of the pastors sitting in a pulpit. If you'll just explain the text, what it actually says, and how people can apply it to their life, and share the gospel, and exalt Jesus Christ, get Him up, you've done more than 80% of pastors in America, in my opinion. So look at what it says here. Three things I want us to note. I don't know what time we're going to get done, but y'all going to get the whole gamut. First thing, Jesus went with them. Look at verse 6. I said this morning, many times we read a passage, and this is how we do it. And Jesus went with them, and then we go right on by. We miss it. If we're not careful, we miss that. Jesus went with them. We just say, well, that's an afterthought. But think about it. That means Jesus had to stop what He was doing. You ever had somebody call you up and you're in the middle of busy doing something and they say, hey, I need you right now. Do you go? Do you go? Oh, yes, great. Someone needs me right now. Let me just go, drop everything I'm doing and go help them. Or do you go? And act like one of your kids rolling your eyes. Man, i got to go down there and do this. We get annoyed when things come into our schedule and break it up, don't we? Praise God! Jesus doesn't get annoyed when we need Him. I mean, I'm sure there were more pressing folks. Folks more deserving than a dime a dozen servant. And think about it. How did Jesus get there? Hey, I need a greyhound down here in Capernaum. Do you think He went out and remote started His Honda? Get on the Camel Express? He walked. Well, how far? I don't know. Maybe he's nursing a blister the size of a grapefruit from his walking that he's done so far. With some points of application, Jesus recognized and took advantage of divine appointments. He ultimately gave up the one commodity that none of us can make more of, and that is T-I-M-E. Do we recognize and take advantage of divine appointments? Are we willing to sacrifice one gift we can't make more of? Time. 
Dr. Rogers, I heard him this week. One advantage of taking your kid to school seven in the morning is you get to listen to Dr. Rogers on 6.40 a.m. He said, why do we eat the cake and give God the crumbs? Why do we eat the cake of our money and give God the crumbs? Why do we eat the cake of our time and give God the crumbs? He's deserving of our first fruits, not our leftovers. Amen? The second thing is Jesus valued people over calendars, personal preferences, His own physical needs, and even public opinion. Do we? Do you know what true joy in the Christian life is? J-O-Y. Jesus and others and yourself third. How many of us are willing to put others before we put ourselves? Brings me to this point. Why did Jesus even go agree to heal this guy in the first place? I mean, this centurion's a Gentile. This slave's just an old broken down tool like we talked about just worthy of being thrown out. Because number three is Jesus didn't just value people, He loved people. Do you know the shortest verse in Scripture? John eleven thirty five. Jesus wept. Why? Why did He weep? I know we normally don't have response time in the morning, but why did he weep? He was broken over the people. The main thing people say is, because Lazarus is dead. But he's broken over this world. He's broken that sin even had to enter this world and a man even had to die. He's looking around at all the people that are hurting and he's weeping because he feels their pain. Praise God, we have a God that hurts when we hurts. I know there are people in here today that are hurting. And praise God, Jesus hurts when you hurt. He feels every pain. Praise God, we serve a God that looks past the mud of this old boy and He sees the masterpiece underneath it of what He can do through Him. And praise God, like I said, we're... Don't serve a God that's annoyed by our needs and concerns. Praise God He doesn't go, Oh man, there's old Dan down there praying again. I've got to listen to him today. Praise God He doesn't do that. Amen? Amen. He's giving you a 24-7-365 conference call to call Him with no static cling in the connection. There ain't no drop calls. Praise the Lord. Two biblical truths and tension. We're worthless, brothers and sisters. Even the best we do, the Bible says, is filthy rags. And I won't even tell you what that Greek word means. Many of you know. But on the contrary of that is we are priceless. You are sons and you are daughters of the King of Kings. As one person said, we need to stop going around like Donald Duck lisping, I'm a despicable person. I'm a despicable person. You're priceless. Act like it. Number two, Jesus marveled at him. Look at verse 9. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. Psalm 8, 4 to me blows my mind. What is man that you are mindful of him? You ever seen a picture of the universe? There's an IMAX movie we went to, and I've told you all this before. And so it starts on earth and it spans out all the way, the universe. And the earth is a speck in a speck in a speck, in a speck, in a speck. This centurion, here's you some uh, nerdy talk. He's a quark on a speck, 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 on a speck in the universe, and Jesus is marveling at him. Why? His faith. You know, there's only two times in Scripture that Jesus marveled. One was the unbelief in Nazareth and two was the belief here. Only two times in Scripture does He commend someone's great faith. The one is a Gentile woman whose daughter He healed and the second is here. And again, the significance is Luke is writing to Gentiles and he wants you to understand that Jesus can be amazed by your faith. Yes, but ultimately through your faith you can be saved because He came to save us. Not call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. All of us. And so he turns to the crowd and he says, man, I ain't even seen faith like this in all of Israel. Why don't y'all learn from this? 
in my opinion, this whole thing speaks of that he trusted the Lord for salvation. And I could be wrong, but look at verse 6. It says, Lord. And he exhibited the key components. Remember, we've talked about it. God, man, Christ, response. He had a true picture of God. What did he say? I'm not worthy. He didn't run around like the, the Pharisees. Oh, look how great I am. Look at my whole chest full of Sunday school pens. As Jimmy said, just because you're a member of this church doesn't mean you couldn't bust the gates of hell wide open. What did the rich young ruler say? Well, I've done all that. Hugh said this, he said, people like that, they look at the errors of others through a microscope and see all the wriggling animalcules, but they look at their own sins through the wrong end of a telescope and fail to spot the foul creatures bumping in the dark. So he had a true picture of self and true picture of God. He says, you just say the word. What does that bring you back to? Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's Colossians 1, 16 to 17, before it was written. Then the final thing is Jesus healed him. Look at verse 10. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. All right? What? Well. That's the word we get hygiene, healthy, whole. Well, how? We're not really even told. Does it say Jesus spoke? Doesn't tell us. Moore says this. He said, Luke leaves us with the question. Did Jesus go beyond even that great faith and heal without so much as a word? And why? Again, he's just a dime a dozen slave. Just a worthless broke down tool, throw it out and get a new one. Praise God that our God's steadfast love endures forever and he sees a speck on a speck on a speck on a speck and he's mindful of him. Amen? Praise God that he speaks and universes exist. Planets turn. Dead hearts beat. Paralysis flees. Stage 4 cancer can be healed like that. And He don't just patch you up. He makes you whole. Praise God that we have a God in Jesus who's 100% God and 100% man who can fully empathize with our every hurt, tear, and pain. Praise God that He comforts us in our afflictions. And I know that there are some of you here today that need to hear this. And I shared it on Facebook this morning because I know and through this message what God brought me to is when I'm putting messages together a lot of times He'll bring a song to mind. I mean it goes so much together doesn't it Brother David? The songs and the Scriptures and the song that came to mind is He Knows by Jeremy Camp. I don't care what you are going through today, Jesus Christ knows. He knows every hurt. He knows every pain because He's walked the suffering. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And hallelujah He was because He knows all of my hurts and all of my pain. And as we like to do when we come back from Africa, we're on the plane, we pop in the earphones and listen to There Will Be a Day. Do you know, I don't know what's going to happen sometimes. And even all the faith in the world, there may be stage 4 cancer that wins on this side. But it will never win for all eternity. Amen? That there will be a day. It might be like this centurion on this day. And it might be that the ultimate healing coach comes through death. Amen? He can speak to that and we miss Bonnie. But I don't know the outcome, but I know that you can rejoice and praise and glorify the great physician because he showers us every morning with his unfailing and unending compassion. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. Thank you so much for this time that you have given us, Father. I just pray that you would just bless the close of this uh, message, Father, and this invitation. I just thank you for everything that you have done in and through us. I ask that you would bless us now in Jesus' precious name. Amen. And so I just want to come to this to close up the message and then invitation. If this Gentile with very little spiritual instruction had this kind of faith in God's Word, how much greater should ours be? We've got a whole Bible 
in 2,000 years of church history. And truth be told, probably most all of our faith pales in comparison to His. If we had a faith Olympics, many of us in here need a faith lift. If we had a faith Olympics, how would you do? Would you get a DQ, a disqualification because in Mark 4.40, as Jesus said, you had no faith? Or would you get a bronze medal? Because as Jesus says in Matthew 14.31, you had little faith. Or would you be on the silver medal podium? Luke 17.5, increase our faith. Or would you have a gold medal? Say the word, Jesus, and it will be done. All of us in here have some work to do in the faith department, don't we? Somebody here today may need to come down on this altar and lay here at this altar and say, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And lay down a situation on this altar or come up here. I mean, I'll be up. I don't mind. We'll be up here for an hour if we need to. Jimmy will come down. You know, we got pastors. Kevin will come down and we will love on you and minister to you if you are struggling this morning. Just come and talk to us. And then if you're here today, and as Jimmy said earlier, you don't know the Lord as Savior. Something I read this past weekend when we were on our little mini-vacay struck me. Vicki gave me this book to read, If I Run. You know what kind of book you give to a medical examiner? One that's a murder mystery, right? And so, in this, the main character is struggling with her faith. And she says this, Christians always act like Jesus' death on a cross was inevitable, like Jesus had to die the way He did. But I don't see it. For instance, why did God set such a high price on sin? And then she uttered this mind-blowing question. Hadn't he ever heard of a discount? Wow. I thought when I read that. I never thought of that. A discount. But how much of a discount do you want? You want 10%? 20%? 50%? 60%? 70%? Brothers and sisters, 99.98% discount of the cup of God's wrath would destroy you. Praise God He doesn't believe in discounts. He believes in substitutes. 1 John 4.10 In this is love. Not that we love God, but He loved us and sent Jesus to be the propitiation that is why He was in the garden like this, sweating drops of blood and saying, please take what? The cat of nine tails from Me? Please take that cross from Me? Please take this cup from Me? You cannot drink the cup of God's wrath. It will destroy you. We come this morning and some of you are on this side of the cup, and some of you are on this side of the cup. You remember that whenever we had the guy come and do the Passover meal? You better get on the third side of the cup, amen? You cannot drink the cup of God's wrath and survive. Only one man could do that, and His name is Jesus Christ. He drank to the dregs your sin so that you could be set free and enjoy what you didn't deserve to enjoy for all eternity. Brother David, I thought of another song as I was thinking of the invitation. Heaven came down. Oh, what a wonderful, wonderful day. Day I will never forget. Sitting in my closet at 167 Lee Street. After I'd wandered in darkness away for 29 years, Jesus, my Savior, I met. Oh, what a tender, compassionate friend. He met the need of my heart. Shadows dispelling with joy I'm telling He made all the darkness depart. Heaven came down in glory filled my soul. I want to ask you this morning, can you really sing that song and mean it? Have you been made whole at the foot of the cross? Have your sins been washed away and your night turned today as it says? Come receive today Jesus' free gift of eternal life this morning and experience as I know, and many of us in here know what it's like for glory to fill your soul. Aren't you thankful Jesus has allowed glory to fill our soul because He drank the cup of wrath for us? But if you're here today, as Jimmy said, and you're playing around church, 
It's going to be all fun and games until the day of judgment. Come today. Do not let one person leave out of here today without knowing Jesus Christ is their Lord and Savior. Whatever decision you have to make today, be it to receive Christ as Lord and Savior, to come lay something on this altar, to come and join this family of believers living and growing together in Christ, to come for baptism, whatever it is as we stand and sing this morning. Page 297, the stand sing. Search me, O God, and know my heart today. Try me, O Savior, know my thoughts, I pray.